The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. If you have your Bibles, let, let us open our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 24. <clears throat> Acts chapter 24, and the title of the message is a very interesting one. Literally, it comes from the scriptures, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11, and it's called Strive to Enter the Rest. So I'm going to be talking to you tonight about the rest that God has called us into, um, and why then would the Bible say that we have to strive to enter into the rest. How many of you, though, would say, I could use in these chaotic and crazy times more rest and peace in my life? Can I hear an amen? Okay, so we strive to enter into it. So tonight's message, we're going to use what the Apostle Paul was experiencing, going through, a lot of opposition, a lot of persecution, a lot of spiritual warfare, and yet he found a place of rest in the midst of the chaos, and that's what we're going to find tonight. Let's bow our heads and pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we welcome the presence of your Spirit here tonight. Thank you for all of your children, all of your sons and daughters, Lord, who are gathered together in your name. And we welcome those who are, you know, listening to the radio, those who are watching from maybe from their home or apartment or condominium. Uh, and are joining us online one way or another, and not only across various uh, states, but various countries around the world. We just thank you for this day and age and time where we can come together, worship together, pray together, and hear the word of the Lord. And I believe, Father, that we need this message, and it literally is from your word. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11, strive to enter into the rest that God our Father has prepared for us. So may we hear what the Spirit says to us tonight in Jesus' mighty, wonderful name. We pray and ask all of these things. And everyone said, amen. So if you, you know, by the way, we welcome uh, new people, you know, maybe on a Saturday night or you're listening for the first time. And, uh, you know, in these times, uh, you know, I just am being reminded that we have new people that are here that are joining us for, you know, from wherever, however that the Lord brought you, uh, welcome and we're glad you're here. One of the things that you'll find is that we kind of teach the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We're going through the book of Acts and we're kind of getting into the final uh, chapters of that story. But we also um, are really wanting as a congregation to, to not only know our calendar, um, the Gregorian calendar, but we really like getting on God's calendar. Can I hear an amen? We love God's biblical calendar. So, you know, you can't find January, February, and March in the Bible, but God has his calendar. It literally goes by the sun and the moon. So anyway, having said that, uh, for those who are paying attention, we are in a brand new month, just a few days into it here, the new biblical month called Cheshvan. Not an easy name to say, but it's Cheshvan. Everybody try it. Cheshvan. Now, here's what's interesting about this month. Maybe you're like, oh, what is that? Yeah, what's well, actually a biblical month and the biblical calendar? What's interesting is there are no feasts. Like, that's another thing our church is very much into is the seven feasts of the Lord. And last month, we, we had three of them. We had the Feast of Trumpets, and then we had Yom Kippur, uh, the Day of Atonement, and then the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's wonderful because all of the feasts point to Jesus, and all of the feasts are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Well, now we're in this month. What's special about it? There's no feasts at all to celebrate. There's no fasts, you know, or special things for prayer or whatever. But here's what's interesting about the month we're in right now. According to the Bible, this is the month that the flood happened to the entire world when Noah was called by God to build an ark, that a storm was coming, that God was going to send something that had never been known or seen before. He was going to open the floodgates. Water would come from above, 
And if you pay attention, water would break forth even from below the surface of the earth and everything would come under the flood of what God did those many years ago in the days of Noah. Now here's beautiful because I have, you know, I love the name Noah. Maybe we have a Noah here tonight or a Noah listening. Surely this weekend we've got several Noahs. It's a good name, a great name, uh, a biblical name. But do you know what the name Noah means? I've got a grandson named Noah. Noah means rest. Everybody say rest. That's what the name Noah means. Isn't that interesting that a guy that went through the great you know, flood had a name given to him by God that means rest? So he was, and so here's the man that, that God's going to save him, his wife, and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives. So only eight people are saved out of the entire planet because God said there's nothing but evil in their hearts day and night. So he saved eight people, but, but he saved a boatload of animals. So nobody can say that God doesn't love animals. God really loves animals. The whole ark was for the animals and the people got in with them. Uh, but here's what's interesting. I'm just gonna share this, say this, um, because we're gonna tie it again back into the end of the message. It's interesting that, you know, so the flood came, it rained 40 days and nights, but it took time for the water to actually recede. Actually, it was about a year before all of that could happen. And the Bible tells us the day that the ark, which went through that great flood, finally rested on top of earth and ground on the top of Mount Ararat. It gives us the day. And guess what we find out? The very day, which was in Noah's day, it was the 17th day of the seventh month, which is this month. And it just so happens that from Noah's time into the future, that same day is the day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. On the Feast of First Fruits, the 17th day of the month called Nisan. So literally the ark with the eight people and a lot of animals rested on Mount Ararat and it was a brand new beginning for the human race at that very moment. And it was all done by a man whose name means rest. All right, so look with me in Acts chapter 24. And, uh, you know, Paul, let's, let's read through verses one through nine. It says, now after five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. And these gave evidence to the governor against Paul. And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusations saying, seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be uh, tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. For we have found this man, Paul the Apostle, a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the entire world, and a ringleader of this sect of the Jewish people called the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him, this Roman centurion, and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. Paul is getting an opportunity now to witness. He, he's kind of going up the chain. He was taken there in Jerusalem, then he went before a Roman centurion, now he's being brought to Caesarea, which is on the coast of Israel. Uh, he's coming now before Felix, who represents the Roman authorities in the land of Israel. Israel was underneath the Roman occupation. So this guy is you know, telling because there was a riot that had broke out. So let me remind you, back in Acts chapter 21, Paul had actually, this was his dream, his desire. I want to go preach Yeshua, Jesus of Nazareth, in, to my own people in Jerusalem. 
So there were many Jewish people in Israel that had heard Paul's going around the Mediterranean, planting all these churches, but he's communicating more to Gentiles, and he's thrown off the law, he's profaned the temple, he's not even Jewish anymore, all lies. So the Jewish believers in Jesus said, hey, Paul, in order to reconnect with your you know, Jewish identity, we think it would be a good idea for you to go to the temple, take a Nazarite vow, let your hair grow for a season, and, and show that you have not abandoned your Jewish identity just because you believe Jesus is the Messiah. So Paul took the vow. At the end of the vow, he cut his hair. He offered prescribed sacrifices in the temple. And then there were those who were brought in and they said, we know who this guy is. And they started this huge riot. Now they've hired a lawyer. They've brought him before Rome, which means that they had to go to Caesarea. And now this Roman guy is basically making the charge. Here were the three charges. Number one, they said Paul is a leader of a rebellion. He's a troublemaker. He is a disturber of the peace. And by the way, this sect called the Nazarenes among the Jewish people, they are loyal to a different king. And they are a threat to the Roman Empire. That was charge number one. Charge number two, they said he's a ring leader of these Nazarites, Nazarenes, because Jesus was known as Jesus of Nazareth, because that's not where he was born, but that's where he was raised. Nazareth had a reputation that went along with it that was not that good. So they kind of threw that on to the apostle Paul. He's the leader of those who come from Nazareth. And then they went on charge number three. They said, and he profaned the temple. Now that was not true, but that's what the charge that is now being brought to them. So this now sets the stage. Here's Paul standing there. There's Felix. The, the lawyer has made his case. Now let's look at what Paul says. Verses 10 through 16. By the way, I don't know if I gave you the first outline point, but even with great opposition, it was the will of God that Paul continue witnessing of Jesus the Messiah. So what I want to just say about that is that even though there is, you know, winds going contrary, things coming against you, that there is never a time where it's not right to give a witness of your love and your faith in Jesus Christ. And in fact, when there is more opposition, it becomes even more important rather than to be silent, to open your mouth and to speak. And I believe that we are living in such a time, this is a time where true believers who are filled with the Holy Spirit, it is our moment to open our mouths and to speak life and truth and the gospel and Jesus he is the answer for everything. Can I hear an amen on that? Amen. amen. So now, verses 10 through 16. When you are accused, and what I, I guess what I want to say in you know, trying to make some application of this, this is a time in a season where Christians are being accused from a variety of different ways. The enemy takes whatever the, the winds and the storms and the circumstances are, and look, politics is one thing, humanity is another, but the enemy, the devil, he is always looking to use earthly circumstances, whether they're political, whether they're economic, and he wants to use a wedge to say it's the Christian's fault. It's those who follow Jesus of Nazareth, basically Christians, they are to blame. So what do you do when you are accused? You can only do one thing, tell the truth. <laughs> So that's where we're going to find an example from the Apostle Paul. When you are challenged, when the finger is pointing at you, when accusations are coming because Satan is the accuser of the brethren, the best thing to do is just speak the truth. And Paul gives a great example of that right here. Verse 10, then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, okay, charges have been made, he steps back. Paul, you have the floor. He answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation. So Paul is respectful of the authority Felix has. I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. So he doesn't have a lawyer for him. Paul is his own defense. 
because you may ascertain that it is more than 12 days, no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. So, so the first thing that Paul says is, hey, thank you. I know that you've been doing this for a while. You have a certain reputation. Let me address you. It's only just days ago that I even came to Jerusalem here in Israel in the first place. And the reason I went up to Jerusalem was to worship, not start a riot, not bring trouble nor sedition to Rome. Verse 12, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone. So I was there to worship in the temple. I wasn't profaning the temple, in other words. I'm praying, I'm worshiping, I actually was giving sacrifice, fulfilling an Azurite vow. I'm not arguing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city. So I not only worship respectfully in the temple, but when I went out and was in the city, I was also respectful. Verse 13, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect. So now he's giving information to a Roman about within Judaism, there are different subgroups. Our group is known as the way, which we believe came from Jesus, who in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 6, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So followers of Jesus among the Jewish people that believe that Jesus, Yeshua of Nazareth, is the Messiah, were known as followers of the way, the Jesus way. He says, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and of the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. So here's Paul's defense. His defense basically is to refute the three charges that were brought against him. He knows his fate is in Felix's hands, so he says, I honor you, I respect your position, let me tell you. I came to Jerusalem here in the Holy Land in order to worship. I didn't argue, I didn't debate, I didn't stir up a crowd, I didn't start a rebellion. And then I've only been here 12 days total and I was already arrested after I'd only been to Jerusalem five days. Five days, basically, Paul is saying, is not enough time to start a rebellion and a an insurrection against the Jewish people. And the other thing is, if I was gonna start an insurrection and some kind of a rebellion, the last place I would start it is in the temple where people are on their knees or they're praying or they're worshiping. <laughs> That's not a good place to get people riled up when they're going to be with God and being quiet. So Paul says, I am not guilty of these charges. And by the way, there's nobody here that can testify. There's no witnesses that can say, well, he said this or he argued that or he debated or he stirred up. He goes, there's no witnesses against me here. And he was in the temple when he was attacked. So Paul could confess and say, now the one thing that I am guilty of, and this charge I do accept, is I am a worshiper of the Lord. He admits, I am a follower of the Nazarene known as Yeshua or Jesus. I am a believer in him. And Paul says the way of the Nazarene, while it may be, you know, so he's explaining to a Roman guy within Judaism Okay, so there are some who believe Jesus is the Messiah. That would be us. There are others who say he's not the Messiah. That would be them. But I just want you to know that's, that's kind of an inner family dialogue that we are having among ourselves. So look, he goes, I believe in the scriptures. I believe in the same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I believe, therefore, as a Jew, this is kind of found... Fundamental to all Jewish belief, I believe in the resurrection. That's the very thing that he had said when he was before the Sanhedrin. Pharisees who believe in the resurrection, Sadducees who don't. Paul said, I believe in the resurrection. And then that, they started fighting amongst each other. 
So it's interesting, now Paul is in a Roman jurisdiction. He is before this guy named Felix. And again, he says, I am a Jew. I am of the Jewish people. Are you going to get into the details of our Jewish theology or the Messiah, who he is and what we believe? Yes, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah and I believe in the resurrection. So here's one of the scriptures I wanted to share with you uh, that's from the Old Testament that talks about the resurrection. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Now let's read this scripture out loud. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So there's one of the prophecies from the famous Jewish prophet Daniel who talks about, he's talking about the latter days when Michael comes, there's going to be this great battle and and then there are many that will die. He says, but out of the dust of the earth, many shall be raised from the dead. How many of you are happy there is a resurrection coming? (laughs) Hallelujah. How many of you are thankful that Jesus is the first to have risen from the dead on the third day, just as the prophets had said, and then he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he that lives and believes in me shall never die. Oh, there, there is no, that is the gospel. It's all about the resurrection. We, who are now Christians in the year 2021, believe the ancient Hebrew, not only apostles, but prophets, who said there is a resurrection, and it comes by faith, and it comes by faith in the Savior, the Messiah, who was sent from heaven and came down through the incarnation, was born into the human family, so that ultimately, and this is the gospel, he could be our lamb, he could be our substitute, he could take our sins, our shame, our guilt, our sentence of death, our eternal separation, and that he could take that upon himself on the cross. But the glorious, beautiful news is, and then he died. The wages of sin is death. If we died in our sins, we're separated from God in darkness for all of eternity. But here's the way things work in God's universe. If a pure, blameless, holy, without blemish, sacrifice, lays down and gives his life, then legally, death, nor sin, nor the devil has legal power to hold on to him. He is free and he did rise from the dead so that all who believe and trust in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Hallelujah, amen. We follow the lamb. That's why we are not ashamed of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We have all had people that we have lost, parents, grandparents, others that we know, family and friends, And we sorrow, but we do not sorrow as those who have no hope. We have the hope. We have a hope of a life after death, of a resurrection, literally out of the dust. And what I love about this is, this is the Apostle Paul, who's now addressing a Roman man of power and authority from 2,000 years ago named Felix. And Paul's desire is, I want to share with you a gospel, good message, good news that you can have eternal life if you'll believe in this Jesus of Nazareth, yes, who has the way. He is the way and the truth and the life. So I, I just love that, that Paul was a faithful witness and he talked about Jesus and he talked about the resurrection to that Roman man named Felix. Now look with me in verses 17 through 21. Paul was guilty of only one thing, that of proclaiming the resurrection. So verse 17, it says, now, after many years, so Paul's continuing, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with a tumult. 
So he's saying, I'm going to explain to you, Felix, there were Jews. They were not from Israel. They were from Asia. They came here. They were troublemakers, and they found me. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. That's a great point. I mean, Paul's a pretty good lawyer. Even though he's a lawyer for himself, he's saying, look, if the charges that were just read about me were really true, don't you think they would have come from Jerusalem and stood here and backed up their, they should be here, but they're not here. There are no witnesses who said these things. And I stand here in my own defense and say, I didn't say those things. Verse 20, or else let those who are themselves or hear themselves say, if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. So there were Jews, maybe not from Asia, but there were Jews from Jerusalem who were there. And Paul says, if I just lied, let some of the Jews who traveled here that are so against me, let them speak up. But none of them were going to speak up. Verse 21, unless it is for this one statement which I cried out, standing among them. And he says, now this is what I will, you know, stipulate. This is what I'm guilty of. Concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. He says, that's why I'm here. He goes, that's why I've been traveling around Rome. That's why I'm standing here before you. That's why I went to Jerusalem. Yes, I am guilty of believing that though a man die, he can be raised from the dead. He can have a reconciled relationship to his creator. And he can know that through this very Messiah, the Christ known as Jesus of Nazareth. So Paul admits to being guilty of that one thing, that of proclaiming the resurrection. Let that be the only thing that you can ever be accused of is that as a Christian is, yes, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and therefore I believe that I too shall be alive with him forevermore. Amen? Amen. Now, here's what I want to take a moment and uh, just share with you something interesting about the prophet Jeremiah. Because I believe that, that God was doing something there with Paul while he was in Caesarea before this Roman man named Felix. The prophet Jeremiah speaks of God sending the Zoim or wine tippers to change the spiritual aroma. Now that's gonna sound unusual, but I wanna, I'm gonna explain something to you, but we need to read a scripture from Jeremiah, the Hebrew prophet Jeremiah, chapter 48, verse 12. Let's read it out loud. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I shall send him wine workers who will tip him over and empty his vessels and break the bottles. So that phrase, I'm going to tip him over that I have underlined there, is the Hebrew word zoim. And so let me share with you, uh, there's the verse right before this, obviously is verse 11. So going back to ancient Israel, do you know how you make good wine? So you make the wine, you put it into the bottle, and then you, you let it sit, uh, and, and you let those chemicals do what they do that ferments, and it's a process. Now this has come literally from you know, the grapevines, and then they stomp them, and then they separate out the seeds and all the stems, and then they put it into the bottles. But there, is, there are still little fine pieces of what we would call dregs. So they, if you're a winemaker, you have all the wine that you've just set. We're going to let it now, let that beautiful richness and quality and depth, it takes time. So you set them on the shelf and you let them settle. But you have to realize that at a certain point, once all those little fine, you know, filaments, the dregs come down to the bottom, what you need to do is take those bottles and tip them over and pour the wine into a brand new vessel, but make sure that right as you get to the point where the dregs would come out, which are heavier and at the bottom, you don't pour the dregs. So the idea is that you literally, and they were called zoim, the wine tippers. They literally, and, and so this became a thing in Israel. They were, they were very important. If you want good wine, you need good wine tippers who tip the wine to make sure they pour it into a new vessel, then they let it settle again, 
And then they take it and they do it, they pour it out again, leaving the dregs behind. Now, if you were a winemaker and you were just interested in money and you wanted to make money as fast as you can, and you were like, well, yeah, just do it once, don't do it twice, and certainly don't do it three, just do it one time, and they would leave dregs in it, what would happen? The, the wine, they would buy the wine, the people take it home, and they go, ugh, it's got a, it doesn't taste right. Uh, there's a bitterness that was left in it. That, that was people cutting corners, trying to make money. But then also what happens, you get their reputation, don't get their wine. So the whole first miracle of Jesus is turning water into wine. You save the best for it last. So God said that uh, within Israel, that's what I'm doing sometimes in your life. When I allow calamities, when I allow circumstances, storms, uh, opposition, and I tip your life over. I literally am, it's necessary for you because we're not, how many would agree tonight you're not perfect yet? Now, let me see. <laughs> Are you breathing? Do you have a pulse, right? So what God does every once in a while, you are the most precious bottle of wine in the universe to God. And because he loves you and he's, he is the best, most detailed, perfect winemaker, he's gonna every once in a while pour you out. He's gonna tip you over. And literally as he tips you over, he, he wants to leave the dregs behind. That's why sometimes a move can be leaving the dregs behind. Uh, you know, going from one job to another can be leaving the dregs behind. Growing up from one stage to another, going from one season to another, uh, one of the things God said is, do not be afraid of change. Because there is a psalm that says, because they had no changes, they feared not the Lord. Change is a good thing. So I want you to say this out loud with me. I will not be afraid of change, for the Lord is with me. He wants to purify me and leave the dregs of the past behind me, that I might be new wine, a new life poured out in purity for him. Amen? Amen. So what God will do, what God has done, if you're a believer, uh, I'll never forget my pastor Chuck Smith. This was one of his favorite messages from Jeremiah and pouring the wine and leaving the dregs behind. And what a beautiful analogy it is for our lives. And God will do that in every one of his children. And you may be being poured out right now. It's okay. Pour it into a new place, into a new vessel, into new circumstances. Praise the Lord. If God's the one that's pouring you, be poured out. But know this, he knows exactly when to take the bottle and say, okay, we're leaving the dregs behind. Leave your past behind. Leave your sins behind. Let what's under the blood of Jesus, it doesn't travel with you into your future. Amen? But may you know this, God will then use you to be a wine tipper in the lives of those around you. They may not always appreciate it. They may not always understand it. But once they have gone through the experience of it, God will use you to tilt people toward their need for God. He will use you to tilt people toward that they're trying to do everything in their life except open their heart to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he uses you to tilt their life toward exactly what they need because you're not afraid, you're not ashamed, you're an open heart, you are a speaking mouth and you speak love and life and truth to them. So may God use, I believe that God is wanting right now in these very, very chaotic times, he's using his children to be the wine tippers because we've learned from our own father who has done it with our own lives and he's gonna teach you how to tilt the wine of other people's lives in such a way you tilt them toward the spirit, you tilt them toward the Holy Ghost, you tilt them toward the gospel, you tilt them toward what they really need, which is the Lord, but then you leave the dregs behind. Amen? Amen. Amen. So look with me in verses 22 and 23. This is very, very interesting here. Just a couple of verses, but Paul 
now finds his place of rest in house arrest. Verse 22, it says, but when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way. So that tells us that Felix, he knew about Christianity. He knew about Jesus of Nazareth. He knew of Jews who believed, you know, that Jesus was in fact the Messiah. He'd no doubt heard since he was in Caesarea of the miraculous things that Jesus had done. So he had, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias the commander comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he doesn't decide on Paul guilty, not guilty. He says, I'm going to postpone the decision. So then he commanded the centurion to keep Paul. And, and so he's under arrest, but to let him have liberty and hold him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. So what happens is uh, Felix, rather than you know, making a decision on the case, he, he says, don't put him into the regular prison with all the, those people. Uh, the regular prisoners. He put him in a house where he'll be under guard, but he's free to roam around. Uh, he's, he's free to have friends. He literally could have his books there brought to him, a library brought to him. He'll have a pen. Uh, he'll have parchment to write letters. He gives a certain amount of respect and freedom to the Apostle Paul, and Paul will be under this house arrest for the next two years of his life. Here's what I find very interesting about that, because how, do you, how, do you, how did Paul look at that season of his life? I'm kind of under arrest, but I'm kind of free. Lord, what do you want me to do with this season? I believe that God was putting Paul under his house arrest. He was putting him in a place where I've given you certain freedoms and liber liberties and you can have friends and encouragement and Paul actually would spend the next two years of his life in Caesarea with a, quite a bit of freedom but in a place where he couldn't travel, he couldn't start new churches, so he's somewhat limited to what he has been doing the last few years but at the same time God says, I want you to rest, Paul. The traveling, I, I think, had been hard on Paul. You, you remember how many times he'd been beaten up in stripes and rods and thrown into the thing and hit and torn apart almost. And it had to have had an effect upon Paul physically, which then affects you mentally, affects you emotionally. And, and what the guy needed, I mean, a good doctor would say, you need to stay in one place and get three meals a day and go get rest at night you can pray, you can write letters, you can encourage people you know, through your ministry, but just stay where you are. God was giving and providing for him rest. And, and if I could just say this, I believe that it was during this time, during these two years, that Paul wrote a letter, uh, and you know, different people have different opinions about this, but uh, I agree with my pastor, Chuck Smith. It's always good to agree with Pastor Chuck, right? And Pastor Chuck said that he believed uh, from all the scholars, and I agree with him because we don't know exactly who wrote the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. It's the one book, why is it called Hebrews? I mean, they were, it was, the whole New Testament was written by Jews, except for one guy. Uh, and so why would they? Because this was written to Jews from somebody who had a brilliant mind, who understood being a you know, Pharisee or understood the law, and yet was able to show people not about legalism, but to show the new covenant and how Jesus is our sacrifice, Jesus is our high priest, everything about revealing Jesus specifically to the Jewish people as the Messiah. And Pastor Chuck believes that it was none other than those two years where God forced through circumstances, Paul to rest. So the analogy I would make is, maybe some of you are in a place where God has got you in a place and you're you know, wanting maybe, I should get out of here, I need to do something or be more or do more or whatever, and God's going, no, 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 stay right where you are. I'm going to do something very unique and special for you. And Paul, 
we believe, wrote this beautiful letter that is like a golden, you know, tree of life for 2,000 years to the Jewish people specifically who are like, how can I as a Jew with Moses and the law, where does Jesus fit in and his miracles and the Messiah and how, all the prophecies and what does it all mean? And, and is, can I still be Jewish and believe in Jesus as the Messiah? That's what God gave, we believe, to the Apostle Paul in those two years where he was at rest, praying, interceding, hearing the voice of the Lord. And here's the one scripture that I want to share with you that is fascinating to me uh, that's in the book of Hebrews. Like I said, that I believe was written none other than by the Apostle Paul during the two years he was at an under house arrest in Caesarea talking with Felix, the very story we're reading this evening in Acts chapter 24. But Hebrews chapter 4.11, some have said is the heart of the whole book of Hebrews. So read this out loud with me. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So the, the writer of Hebrews is basically saying, hey, there is a rest that remains. And the analogy he uses for the people of Israel is the promised land that God wanted to bring them to was a place where they could rest. They could have their families and their children and God would prosper them and bless them and their agriculture and their farms and their fields and children and schools and life and fruit and the supernatural and the glory of God just blessing them, provoking the rest of the nations into jealousy. And it was called a rest. But they were not ready to enter all the way into the rest. They stopped because of their unbelief. And that generation perished in the wilderness. So what's interesting, though, is that here's the message that the Lord has for all of us. He wants us to rest. When you're in the Spirit... You are at peace, you are at rest. Would you say amen? amen? God wants you to be at rest and at peace. Then why does Paul the Apostle say that we must strive to enter into rest? Well, let me ask you a question. How many of you find it difficult uh, to be peaceful in such a chaotic world? Do I see any hands go up? It's not easy. And it's very simple to preach. Hey, you guys just kick back, just rest. Lord's got it. Okay, great. But what's our human nature? Our human nature is not to rest. Oh, yes, Lord, I trust in you, but let me help you out, right? We want to help God out, and we're very active, and we're very busy. And I wanted to just say this. To get to the place where you totally, completely do not rely on your own wits, your own ideas, your own ability, like, God, I'm helping you. That's our human nature. Our human nature is to help God. I love you, God. I trust in you, God. Thank you for your promises. But here's what I need to do more. I need to, you know, serve more. I need to be more anointed, more spiritual. You know, we're constantly working, working. But here's what Paul said. You're working for the wrong thing. You need to strive to enter into the complete rest where you're at peace. The great story in the Old Testament that is the best picture of that is none other than a guy named Jacob. You know, Jacob, he's the guy that had, you know, all the 12 sons and the 12 tribes. And do you know what Jacob means? Heel catcher. He's a twin. And he came out as a baby holding onto his brother's heel. Like, I wanna be first. And he lived his whole life that way. Working, striving. He loved God, he believed in God. He was a very spiritual man. But he said, God, I'm going to help you out. And he was always arranging his life by circumstances. And finally, one night, the angel of the Lord came. And what did he say? Okay, it's you and me. Let's go. We're going to, we're going to wrestle. And he wrestled. It was a man, but, he wrestled, but the man was not a man. The man was the angel of the Lord. And he wrestled with that man, the angel of the Lord, all night long. And he couldn't win. That was a picture of his life. That's our lives. Many of you have known the Lord for decades. You're still wrestling. It's like, I've got, another, I've got another round in me, Lord. And the Lord is saying, no, I need you to, here's what actually happened. The angel of the Lord takes his hip out of its socket. And finally, he goes, okay, 
I lose. I give. But then with tears, he grabs the angel and he says, but I'm not going to let you go. He's still fighting. And he says, unless you bless me, if you bless me. And then he says, so what's your name? Jacob, meaning heel catcher. I've been striving to keep ahead and keep first and doing the best that I thought I could my whole life. And now that he's weeping, he's, he's yielded. He said, I lost. I've wrestled with the angel of the Lord and you beat me. You defeated me. I surrender. But will you just please bless me? He goes, okay, your name is no longer Jacob. You're no longer going to be striving. The rest of your life, you're going to rest. You're going to trust. Your new name is what? Israel. Israel. What does Israel mean? Prince with God. What that means is he, he wrestled with God and won. How did he win? By losing. By crying uncle. By saying, I give in. And with tears, all I need is your blessing. That's what God is doing with all of us. He's wanting to bring us into the place of peace and into the place of rest. Well, we'll close with verses 25 through 35. We'll just read through this. It kind of speaks for itself. But in verse 25, it says, he wrote a letter in the following manner, Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor, Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. And then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antiparis, or Patras. The next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and returned to the barracks. And when they came to Caesarea... Wait a minute, am I reading the right place? Okay, well, that was a very nice reading of the end of chapter 23. I have to turn my page. I was just seeing if you were paying attention. Oh, my gosh. You know what, though? I was into it. I was reading it. And in my brain, I'm going, this doesn't sound like where I'm supposed to be reading. So anyway, hallelujah, Saturday night. Okay. So where am I really? Okay, verse 25, well, 20, where am I? 24, 20, kept Paul, have liberty. All right, verse 24, we'll start there. And after some days when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away from, for now, and when I have a convenient uh, time, a more convenient time, I will call for you. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul that he might release him, and therefore he sent for him more often and conversed with him. So he kept him in prison, hoping he would get a bribe. But after two years... Portius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. So Felix heard the gospel from the Apostle Paul, was moved emotionally with fear, but he would not repent and he would not respond to Jesus Christ. He said, I'll hear you at a more convenient season. I want to say to anybody here that has not made a decision to follow Jesus Christ, we're in the year 2021. That's from 2,000 years ago. Did Felix put off? He heard the gospel. He was moved by it. He trembled with fear because he knew it was right. He had something internally telling him Jesus is the Messiah, but he, as far as we know, did not respond. How many would agree he should not have put it off? 2,000 years. What is a prophet of man to gain the whole world and then lose his own soul. So if you haven't given your life to Christ, you need to do it now. Would you all bow your heads and close your eyes? Ask the worship team to come out and I'm going to just say a very simple childlike prayer. If there is even one person listening to this message um, and you're moved, you've been considering Jesus. It's amazing how in difficult times 
All of a sudden, you've been thinking about Jesus, uh, thinking about maybe you went to church years ago, you were raised with something, maybe with parents that, that brought you to Sunday school or you were baptized or catechism or maybe you had no spiritual upbringing, but you have a friend or somehow you've heard and you know Jesus is the truth. I want you to open your heart right now and say a very simple childlike prayer. I'm gonna invite everybody to pray with me out loud after me. Um, it's not that all of us get saved again, but it's remembering the sweetness of our salvation. But there may be somebody for the first time. I pray there's a Felix listening to this message. But instead of putting it off for a more convenient season and then we don't know the future. You don't know what a day will bring. You have no guarantee of tomorrow. The Bible never says get saved tomorrow. It says if you hear his voice, harden not your heart, get saved today if your heart is tender. So if that's you, let's pray together a simple childlike prayer and you can be forgiven and given eternal life right now. Let's pray after this manner. Dear Lord, I admit that I am a sinner and I ask you to forgive me of all my sins. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying on the cross in my place. I open the door of my heart and I ask you to come into my life to be my personal Lord and Savior. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit I receive the gift of eternal life. Now help me follow you, Jesus, all the way to heaven until I see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.